Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, without a doubt, the most valuable thing that God gives us is eternal life. It is primarily what we will experience after we die, even though we sort of experience aspects of eternal life right here, right now. Now, I don't want to say that's not that's the only blessings. There's a lot of blessings to be a disciple of Jesus right now in this life, but they kind of pale in comparison to what's coming next. That said, it's amazing how little we talk about it. And even more amazing how little people know about it. I mean, we talk about how you're saved, which, of course, is fundamental. All the rest is irrelevant to you if you're not. But what's coming next, you should think about. You should see that as a continuous part of, of your existence. Don't just go blank like there's a wall that you can't know anything beyond when you think about your future and you think about your own personal death. Uh, there's a lot that can be known. And we're going to draw some of that from our first reading, Revelation chapter 7. Now, I will say this in, in somewhat warning. When you look around, uh, like on the Internet, and you read around, you will find a, a lot of very confusing and, I would say, incorrect ideas. You will read stuff that says, you know, the Bible says you never go to heaven. You, you just go to the resurrection and new earth. And then you'll find sites to say exactly the opposite. There is no such thing as the new earth. That's just a description of heaven. And, and there's reasons why people are confused by it. It is sort of a confusing picture until you really take some time to study it. Part of the big difference is how things change around certain events. First of all, Judgment Day. Judgment Day is an actual day that is coming and you will be there. But Judgment Day changes the fate of people who have already passed away in a way. People who've been in heaven now will have more than heaven. They'll have a resurrection of their body. People who've been in Sheol now will experience the full forsakenness of hell. And because they are sort of similar, I think a lot of people, a lot of theologians even, have conflated those things, have brought them together in a way that was incorrect. So that's one reason why people get confused. There's also kind of a change that goes around Jesus' victory. What was the fate of people before Jesus' victory is very different after Jesus' victory. And then there's the thing of what, what words do you use to describe it? That is, we don't have a vocabulary for some of this stuff. Right in the hymn that we sang, Ye Watchers and Ye Holy Ones, it talks about cherubim and seraphim. Isaiah, when he gets a vision of heaven, sees these creatures that he describes. He's not told what they're called. He coins a word. Burning ones. Seraphim. 
Later, when Ezekiel seems, sees exactly the same thing, and he describes it, they're the same thing. He doesn't know what to call them, so he calls them living ones, cherubim. So there's not seraphim and cherubim. They're the same thing. And whatever they're actually called, I don't think we know. Other things kind of mess you up. How, how the word sleep is used by both Paul and Jesus. It's just used to describe how the body seems to be in repose. It's not anything else like normal human sleep. You're not sleeping until judgment day. And that's one thing that comes out of that. How the word life is used. It's not always talking about having brain function and, and heart working here in this world. To be alive to have life is to be with God in the Bible. And similarly, death isn't just non-existence. Death is to exist forsaken by God, exiled from God. And I, that was going to be my list until we, we listened to the choir anthem and, and sang the last song. Rest is another misleading word. You're not resting, particularly in heaven. You're just done with the hard parts of your existence, which are all here. So you get to be done with the hard work and the struggle, but you are hardly sitting back on a couch, you know, just playing video games or something like that. So those things lead to a lot of confusion. But let's see that what we can gather from just, just one text. And that's our first reading, Revelation 7, 9 through 17. And the first question that I ask when I look at this is, what is it? Is it a vision or is it a field trip? Okay, can you gather the difference between those? So, on the side of field trip, John, when he goes, interacts with one of the elders. They're, they're talking to each other. So you might conclude, if you can talk to him, it, it's got to be a field trip. He's got to be there. But on the flip side, he notices that everybody there is dressed in white robes, the hymn we just sang, white robes, and people could rightfully ask, how come everybody in heaven is dressed in first century garb? And, you know, maybe you don't like what I wear, right? And, and don't want to be in a white robe. Well, you can relax. I don't know if there's white robes or not, but, but what John sees is not their attire. They're dressed in white robes, but when they are described, it says, you know, these are they who've come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And I ask you right now, is Jesus a laundry detergent? Or does he cleanse your soul? And he cleanses your soul, right? So what you are seeing is Revelation's vision of your soul. So I'm going to end up concluding 
that this is a vision, not a field trip, but it's a pretty cool vision, an interactive vision that John has given. Where is it? You do have two choices here. Is this in heaven proper? Or is this someplace in the new earth? And, and here you get no clue in the midst of the text at all. But if you look beyond it, the order of Revelation tells you where it is. Now, Revelation is not ordered like most books, which would be chronological from beginning to end. It goes from time of Jesus to the very end multiple times, kind of like making circles. But within those circles, they are chronological. And here, this vision happens in the midst of one of those circles. It has not got to Judgment Day. So this is heaven. This is what you could see right away when you pass from this world. Then the question for me is, when is it? He describes seeing so many people, not angels, people, more than he can number. And at the time of John, if it's at the time of John, who would even be there? They would be the people redeemed from the time of Jesus up till John, and then people who have passed away, because a lot of them might be still alive. So that's not a real big, big number. It would also include the Old Testament righteous who have now been brought to heaven. So that may swell the number quite a bit. But they are described as a group of people who represent every tribe and nation. And that, I would conclude, would not be true at the time of John. John's vision has taken him forward in time, maybe almost to the end of this earth's time. And that leads to, I think, just sort of a a little bit of an exciting thought. In that group of people that he sees, maybe stand you and I. If it's beyond our time, we're there. We could be in that picture. So what do we learn from, from this particular text? If you go through it from top to bottom, probably the most important thing, always the most important thing. The inhabitants of heaven are those who are washed by the blood of the Lamb. Like I said before, unless you get there, the rest of the details are irrelevant, right? So Jesus Christ is the the atoning thing for our sins. He and he alone. And that's what we are. We're washed in the blood of the Lamb. We also learn that the people of heaven are a diverse people. Every tribe and nation. So you need to get this through your head. If you hold racist views, you're going to have to lose them. Okay? They are inappropriate for the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is everybody. There is no nation excluded There is no nation more valuable than another. There is no skin type that's preferable. I don't know where you learned it, but unlearn it. 
We also learn that there's other advanced creatures up there besides us. Please, please, please never tell your children when somebody dies that grandma has become an angel. She has not become an angel. You might as well say grandma has become a porcupine. It is not what happens to people. Angels are a separate creature, much like people, but they're not people. When you die, you remain a human, just a human in a different state than you are today. And there are cherubim, or if you prefer, seraphim. I don't think there are many. There may be just five. And the extra one would be Satan, perhaps. Life there is without the curse. So all the things that make your life difficult here, they won't be there. Life there is without your sinful nature, because that remains wherever you dropped your body. It is gone. So relative between there and here, uh, there is so much better. In fact, they refer to here as the Great Tribulation. Now, the Great Tribulation might be a reference to a particular time of persecution that is to come, but I think it applies across the board. Even when you're living in a very nice place at a very nice time with very little pressure, as we do, you still live under the curse. There are still things that make life maddening. There is still the pressure of Satan. There's still the pressure of you. So don't get too comfortable here. Don't look at yourself ever and say, Oh, what a miserable existence I have. You know, this is just a little tiny time where it can be difficult. Power through it. And the last thing from this particular text is that life is full of interaction with God. Now, now some people get a little worried when they see this, and it's primarily a worship scene. We're all gathered around the throne to worship God, and the hymns often say it, to worship continually. And it sounds like heaven is just one worship service that does not end. And that doesn't thrill you, because probably your tolerance for it is about an hour, I'm going to guess. First of all, don't underestimate how thrilling and enrapturing it will be to worship God when you can see God. That will be something that you won't have a, oh, I'm kind of tired of this, I'd like to move on experience. So that's one thing. But the other thing from this text that I would gather is, as it talks about our interaction with Jesus and our interaction with the environment there toward, toward the end of this text. In verse 17, it says, The Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will lead them to springs of living water, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. We're not just standing around the throne worshiping. We are going out into this vast environment that God has created. And believe me, it's going to be beautiful. And we will be doing, I don't know what, but all kinds of things 
But one thing we will find very common about it is we'll be interacting with Jesus face-to-face like a buddy quite often, if not all the time. So that that is a very information-thick text about heaven. Let me give you a, a quick broader picture from, from other things. First of all, when you pull it all together, I think it is absolutely certain that when you die, you go to heaven immediately. You don't go to judgment day. You don't go to sleep. You go to heaven immediately. It's not like a dream. You're not ghost-like. You have a heavenly body, a body that's appropriate for heaven. It's as solid as the body you got here. Maybe, in some people's cases, more solid than the body you have here. But yet, we have, when we leave this earth, and I'm presuming here we leave it before Jesus comes again, we are still waiting for something. We are not to our final state. Our bodies, our physical bodies, are, I don't know what, Buried, burned, eaten, I don't know what. That's part of us. We may think we don't want it back, but we do want it back. And God's going to give it back. Doesn't matter what happened to it, a resurrected body and ability to be in, in this time and space, in a new earth. That is coming, and is coming with Judgment Day. So if you're with God in heaven, there will be a day that you will be returning with Jesus for Judgment Day. And Judgment Day is relevant to people who are already saved by grace. It's not about whether you're saved or not. It's about whether you're going to be rewarded in a certain way or not. Now, now, for people who do, do not belong to Christ, yeah, it's about whether you're saved or not. And they will be moving to a, an even more, even more horrible fate than what they've been experiencing if they've been in Sheol or whether they are alive at the time. God's throne room where you see the people worshiping in Revelation 7, moves. It's hard to say God's in a certain place, right? God's everywhere. But there is something special about where he is in heaven right now, right? I don't know how to describe it other than visible. That's where he is. That place moves to this place in a new created earth and a new Jerusalem. And the song we sang, Jerusalem the Golden, has more words that apply actually to God's throne room and the new Jerusalem at the new earth rather than it does to right now. And finally, I would say this, our habitation will be wherever God is. And because God fills both heaven and earth, I think our habitation will be heaven and 
earth. All kinds of places to be. All, play, all kinds of things to explore. All kinds of things to do. And you are never away from the one who loves you. Now, how's that sound? You okay with that? That's God's plan for you in Christ. And you are to take that plan Two other people who right now either have an alternative view of what happens when they die or just don't know, just don't care, living, ignoring the fact that they're going to die. One thing I can say for absolute certain, everybody's going to die. So everybody needs Christ. But people out there are going to say to you, that's really neat, but what proof do you have? We have the proof that comes from Scripture that centers around Jesus, he who is foretold centuries in advance. And clearly, this is him. We have the proof of the miracles that he did and the eyewitnesses who observed it and recorded it. We have the proof of the Holy Spirit who goes out to, to create faith in you, And those are their main proofs, but I can also add one other that they may appreciate. Near-death experiences confirm this pretty well. And they happen more and more and more as our ability to resuscitate people becomes more. Do I put a whole lot of weight on the details of near-death experiences? I do not. I, I treat them like... I would somebody claiming a prophecy. I got to test it. It's got to jive. Because it's coming through people's kind of failed memory and, and somewhat interpretation of what they are experiencing. But overall, many people experience heaven and it corroborates what we said. And some people have experienced what they call hell. I would say, well, you went to Sheol. It actually gets worse. And they don't want to go back. All right? So these things all give credence to what we are saying. It's not just wishful thinking. It's not just a way to comfort ourselves about the fact that we're going to die. So if you come across people and they want to be fussy about it, ask them what they believe and what proof do they have. And you will probably find that they don't have any proof. It just is what they think or they wish. Here you've got something that's got evidence around it. And it, and it isn't just something that tells you, sit back and relax. Your life is irrelevant. Wait for the next one. No, it's something that says, you've got this coming by grace. And on top of it, God's given you a God-given purpose for this time. And it matters as we go out into the future, or at least it can. So God-given purpose upon all these other good things, that is your blessing in Christ. Rejoice in it. Now, I'm going to conclude this sermon with a bit of a commercial. Um, I've been studying this topic and topics related to what the Bible says 
about life after death. And I've been writing articles almost every other week since 2016. So the number of articles is well over 200. And if you look in the very back page here in your, your bulletin, if you're watching online, there should be you know similar graphics for you. The first bar graph shows how many readers have read these blogs since 2016. The high mark was 2020. It was over 5,000. This year is going to be more by the end of the year. And the other exciting part, because I do consider this to be a ministry of our congregation, is where it's been read. And the map isn't great. You have to be able to know what belongs there or not. But every shaded area is where at least one person, if not multiple persons, have read it. It's almost the entire planet. There's a few missing spots through Central Africa where I'm sure Internet's not great. In Afghanistan, where I'm sure Internet's not great. The only developed nations that I see that don't have a reader are Cuba and Iran, and I'm sure that I'm blocked. All right? Otherwise, there's been readers from everywhere. Sometimes many, many, many. Share the word about eternal life. Be excited about it yourself. And be excited for those you know who've gone ahead of you in Christ Jesus. Amen.